You're listening to Artisan Hackers, a podcast in art, code, and community, and the new digital tools of creation. We talk to programmers, artists, poets, musicians, bot makers, researchers, educators, and designers in an effort to critically look at online art making and the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. In this season of the podcast, we're working with the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law to unpack the thorny and important issues in the world of art and code. In this episode, we dive into the world of Creative Commons, which is both an organization as well as a collection of copyright licenses now used by artists worldwide. Creative Commons is now over 20 years old, and its licenses are used by artists, musicians, writers, directors, and many other creators worldwide to share their work, to encourage others to reuse, and even sometimes to modify their work. It's something I use quite a bit, from how I choose to share music, to how I create and put it on Bandcamp, to the photos I see on Wikipedia articles, to audio snippets and tracks we select to accompany this podcast. But I didn't know much about the forming of the organization and the evolution of Creative Commons. So I spoke with Kat Walsh from Creative Commons and asked her to talk about the founding of the organization. Creative Commons is a nonprofit organization that is basically founded to enable openness and sharing online, mostly through a suite of licenses that allow for sharing of works. But we also have other initiatives to promote openness, such as uh, open education, uh, working with galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, and other things where people are sharing creativity and knowledge. I want to ask a little bit about where Creative Commons came from, both as an organization and kind of the initial impetus for the idea, as far as I know, about about two decades ago. Yeah, so Creative Commons came about basically in response to uh, the Copyright Term Extension Act. Uh, So copyright is for a fixed duration of time. That's how it's set out in the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution says that these copyrights should last for a limited time to strike a balance between the interests of creators being able to uh, produce more works, and usually that's by giving them an incentive to uh, to produce them because they'll be rewarded economically because they're the only ones who can sell them and share them, uh, and the public interest, which is in having knowledge and information available. And that balance is already pretty biased if you ask a lot of people like the Copyright terms are pretty long. Uh, it's a long time before works can enter into the public domain, and the legislature was going to make that even even longer. So there was a group of scholars, academics, lawyers who decided that maybe there was something a little wrong with this. Uh, there was actually a court case filed uh, over the Copyright Term Extension Act from some people who were using works that were coming into the public domain that were no longer going to be in the public domain due to this uh, legislative extension. Uh, and they lost that case. Uh, copyright was extended for another 20 years. Uh, The legislature was probably not going to do anything to put more works into the public domain, make more works available to the public. Uh, But what if they could do something that would work not to change the copyright system itself to be kind of a hack to work on top of it? So uh, what if you could write a license that would keep some of the rights that copyright extended to creators, but would uh, give some of them away? What if you could get credit for your work, but everything else, uh, anyone else could do anything with it? 
Uh, what if you could keep the commercial rights, but share everything else, allow people to trade on file sharing services, things like that. Creative Commons was created to do what the legislature was not going to do, uh, create solutions for people where the copyright system was not striking the right balance. From my perspective, you know, being an artist that often works with programming or makes digital kinds of work or even kind of music that I want to share, I often think of copyright not as something on my side, but something that will, you know, keep me from be kind of being creative, sharing and being able to kind of be part of kind of like this remix culture and zine and DIY culture that I grew up within. So when I first learned about Creative Commons, this idea that there was like, you know, it's a legal framework, which first of all, seemed a little bit funny to me, you know, as an artist without that kind of background, but it was something that seemed like to support my ability to find other people that wanted to share their materials and make it so that I could remix their music, remix a video, take other stuff that I found that they wanted to share and allow me to use it. And I think from that perspective, I found Creative Commons to be really liberating and to be something that's really excited me over the years. And it's, it's, it's why I've you know, looked for and, and shared work in the Creative Commons for so long. I think that's true of a lot of people and my background also. I'm a musician. I'm a composer. Uh, my first experience with copyright was trying to get a bunch of recordings of contemporary music and scores of contemporary music so that I could study it. And the people who had it could not share it with me because they did not have the copyright. And that just seemed a little bit broken because the way that everybody learns is through uh, studying and sharing and remixing what has come before. Uh, so I think that's a, a pretty common story. I wanted to ask a little bit about licenses as le as legal documents, which they are, but also as signals and statements. And what I mean by that is when you're putting a Creative Commons license, to some degree, you're also sharing certain values. It might not be kind of the widest amount of values, but you're, sh you're at least stating kind of not just a willingness, but you know, probably an, an indicator that you that you want to share your work and be part of a cultural commons in a certain way. I'm also wondering where this has rubbed up in legal cases too, and and what part does Creative Commons play in that in terms of defending artists and other creative practitioners that use Creative Commons licenses in various ways. Sure. Uh, so I think that's totally right that the CC licenses are not just legal tools, but uh, are signals that the person who made this work wants it to be shared, wants it to be reused, uh, wants other people to benefit uh, from it. Uh, and they're only asking a few simple things in return, uh, usually credit. Uh, sometimes they want uh, other things such as for your work to be shared alike, but it is a a signal that the creator has thought about these things and they decided that they, they want a lot of the reuses. And that that solves uh, the vast majority of the problems before they even get to the point of enforcement. Uh, most disputes over CC licenses are resolved by you know, just communicating with the creator, or uh, if, if you find somebody violating a term, communicating with those people and getting the, getting the issues to be resolved. There have been some court cases about CC licenses, uh, sometimes about people not uh, giving, giving correct credit or about what kind of uses are commercial or not. CC is not a party to those cases. Uh, we're not directly participating in the court cases, but sometimes we will release clarifying statements about how we intend the licenses to be used or guidance for creators and reusers about what exactly the licenses mean in hopes that more of these disputes can be settled uh, without going to court. One of the main things that we hope 
the CC licenses accomplish is to reduce friction so that everybody doesn't need to hire their own lawyer to create and reuse culture. People know what the licenses mean. They're easy to comply with. They don't need the expense and friction of lawyers. So we try to help people avoid that however we can. I think one question I have right now is, so Creative Commons, from my perspective, feels like a, ver- a fairly successful or very successful movement. I, you know, I feel like I participate in it by putting work that CC licensed up online. The music for this podcast um, often um, comes from Creative Commons licensed music, and we give credits to the to the artists that compose that music at the end of the episode, and as well as on our website. and And there's just a huge number of people using and participating in Creative Commons in many ways. I'm curious, two decades from its founding, what are some of the areas that Creative Commons is working on, and and things that you're thinking about for the future? Or uh, in the early days, uh, the individual artists and creators were the biggest part of uh, create the Creative Commons movement. But more and more over the decades, we've seen adoption from institutions. We've seen governments adopt CC licenses to require that, for example, things funded by government grants be CC licensed and uh, available to the public. We've seen public institutions, research institutions make their scholarship available. We've seen uh, galleries, archives, things like that make their scholarship and their digitized collections available uh, using CC licenses and CC tools. So the institutional adoptions are maybe less cool and have like less cool parties uh, than the artists and musicians, but they have had maybe an outsized uh, impact We've also seen adoption by platforms uh, really help get a lot of creators into Creative Commons. Uh, Flickr, for example, was one of the earliest adopters of CC licenses uh, way back in 2004. And people saw like, oh, uh, I could put this this license on my work and then people would be able to find it and share it. Uh, a lot of the things, for example, that have ended up on Wikipedia came from those uh, Flickr users who just decided to put a CC license on their work. A lot of people have seen uh, it both getting greater exposure for their work and just that it it feels pretty good to see their work reused when otherwise it might have lived uh, ignored on their website somewhere. Aside from hosting this podcast, I'm also an artist and a musician, and I've been making experimental music for about 20 years. In college, I mostly jammed with friends. This would be in person. But after college, I was sometimes playing with another person, but often just putting my music online, looking for other people also making electronic and experimental music. I posted my work to SoundCloud and I would look for other people making music too. I saw some tracks that were labeled Disquiet Hunto and that kept coming up and I went to the website and I found that it was a distributed online loose collective of people that each week made music in response to a prompt. So I began to submit music to this as well, and I found a whole community of people creating Creative Commons licensed music. Today, I'm talking to the founder and ringleader of Disquiet Hunto, Mark Wiedenbaum. There's several ways to describe what the Disquiet Hunto is. Um, The best description I've heard is something someone else said. Uh, They said that um, the Disquiet Hunto is that I write record reviews of music that doesn't exist and then internet strangers proceed to record it. Every Thursday, I send out a prompt, um, and then people have until Monday at midnight to record um, music that responds to that prompt. Um, this week's prompt is one in an occasional series we do, a sequence we do that looks at the whole idea of genre. You know, what does a genre even mean anyhow? Is it a self-contained concept? Is there a lot of 
movement between genres? Do they change over time? Do they mean things in different places differently? Um, in this case, we're looking at the concept of a, a genre we've made up called magical, uh, just, excuse me, digital magical realism. Like we know what magical realism is, especially in fiction, but what would digital magical realism be if it was a genre of music? So all I did was I sent out that concept to about 1800 subscribers at the mailing list. And, you know, my guess is between 20 and 40 will between now and Monday upload their take on what it is. And you've been doing this each week for over a decade, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. January of 2012, I was sitting in a cafe with a friend of mine and uh, I had this idea um, and I wanted to give it a go. I didn't know if anyone would participate. So that first week, I, I didn't know there'd be a second one, let alone what is now the 563rd. Um, but there was a kind of community going, a group of people communicating about this sort of thing on Twitter. And so I just sent out the following to a group of people. I said, record the sound of ice in a glass and make something with it. And that was the very first Disquiet project, that one line. And now every year since, we've done that each first week of January of each year subsequently. One of the things that stood out to me from the beginning was that that most people make their music Creative Commons license. And I know that you know you encourage that each week. It even says that in your email. I'm curious what Creative Commons means to you and, and how you got involved and in, in being interested in that. So I would have to dig back to figure out how I first came to be aware of Creative Commons. Um, my guess is it was through the Internet Archive. That would be my guess. Um, I was just really intrigued and kind of relieved by the fact that someone, some group of people had taken the time to not only recognize a major gap in the law when it comes to copyright, but to actually give people tools, really, really simple tools to address it. One of the ways to think about it is that when someone wants to let people do something with their sounds, wants to work communally that sort of action was much more easily anticipated and monitored and encouraged um, when we all lived in the same place. You know, if you all went to the same cafe or you all went to the same school or you were all members of the same scene, as it were, um, it was easy to sort of understand that someone covered your song or they played with a riff of yours or they borrowed a recording and did something with it. But it's very different when it's the internet and it's a lot of people who don't know or necessarily trust each other trying to figure out how they can say, it's okay to rework this, but under the following rules. And I just found that so relieving. And, and I'm of an age where I lived through the, you know, the, the kind of legal foment around hip hop. Sampling existed long before hip hop, but hip hop really brought it to the fore, especially in a legal sense for various reasons. And there was a period of time where amazing records came out where the rules weren't set down. And um, there's a nice opportunity in Creative Commons to to be able to create a zone in which people can comfortably share things and not just share them with the expectation they might be worked on, but also benefit from it by having access to things that they themselves might rework. So I found that very um, heartening. Can you say some of your favorite projects that you've done with the Hunt over the years? Yeah, certainly. Um, there's a wide range of projects. You know, we've done, we're, as I mentioned earlier, we're now doing our 563rd right now. That's 563 consecutive Thursdays since January 2012, which is, sort of blows my mind when I say it out loud. One of the most meaningful products to me that came out of the Junto was one of the members of the Junto died fairly early on in the Junto. Um, and it was fascinating to me because I had never spoken to the person, but emotionally it hit me very hard. Um, he was a really nice guy. He was a, a strong participant. And, and uh, he was the person who, for a time, had maintained a list on Twitter of all the Twitter accounts of 
people who were hunter lovers. You could follow that list and see what people were up to. So it was a nice part of the community. Um, and then he died, I think at age 45, um, he had a young child. And the next project, what we did was he had some beautiful recordings online. So people were given one of them and then told to duet with it. So it was a posthumous collaboration. And even as I say that now, like eight years after the fact, I can feel the emotion in me. I can just feel how, um, how sad it may be and how emotionally meaningful it was for us to engage with the work that way. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about the Junto, um, and I'm curious if this is something that's been meaningful t- to you as well. You talked before, you know, about how, you know, essentially Brian Eno was a certain kind of key to the start of, of you know, your evolution from kind of being more of a journalist and, and a musician to kind of opening it up and kind of being a, a caretaker to some degree, you know, mm-hmm. of, of creating this community. One of the things I've been thinking about is Brian Eno's conception of seniors versus oh, yeah. genius. You know, yeah. seniors as like a as a communal, let's see if I can find the actual phrase. He writes, Senius stands for the intelligence and the intuition of a whole cultural scene. It is the communal form of the concept of the genius. And one of the reasons that resonates with me so strongly is rather than kind of looking up to individuals that are creating culture for us to consume, for me, it, it makes it more that culture is created by the community overall, not by you know individuals necessarily, but by the collection of all of us and that we all contribute to scenes and communities and the evolution of art as a whole. And I'm curious if that's something that's been personally meaningful for you in the evolution of the Junto. Yeah, I think the word seniors, the concept behind it is an incredibly strong one. Um, and I think it's the case, and I think this is something you know himself has said, which is that what often happens is that an individual or a band or a few people from within a scene become kind of more broadly known for it. The way that kind of like Lyle Lovett became like a kind of symbol of what happened in Austin musically, or a certain person would come out of Detroit or the downtown scene in New York, like John Zorn or someone. But these individuals were really kind of synecdoches for a whole enormous amount of activity. And I'm not saying that for the individuals, it wasn't deserved, but the way that the broader public, especially the non-musician public, thought about those scenes was they didn't really even understand there was a scene per se. They thought saw these people as geniuses without really appreciating or understanding the role that the scene played in them being who they were. So yes, genius is very much on my mind. And the extent to which I can, through the Hunto, create what I think of as a kind of online scene, kind of foment and reinforce, being cautious about my role in it by not dictating aesthetically too much and so forth, um, and being as welcoming as possible, th- that, that is uh, 
long been my goal for what I'm doing. Has your understanding of Creative Commons changed over the years now that you've been doing this for so long? I mean, have you evolved at all in your thinking about it or how it can best be used or, um, you know, its meaning in your life or the life of musicians or and other artists? So ultimately, Creative Commons is a technology. That's what it is. It's, a, it's an agreement. An agreement is a form of technology, much as language is a technology. And I think that my understanding of, of Creative Commons has grown and I think it's gotten richer. But I think at the same time, the technology within which Creative Commons might play a role has changed a lot. You know, systems have gotten more and more locked in. Um, people are much more likely to listen on a streaming service like Spotify than a streaming service like SoundCloud. And that's a huge change for the simple reason that uploading audio to SoundCloud was something that was really easy to do. It's not impossible to Spotify or the like at all, but it's a much more closed system and requires a lot more hoops to jump. And so the division for a long time, it felt like kind of in the punk model the division between stage and audience had been slowly going away. And SoundCloud was a big part of that, Bandcamp as well. But the rise of streaming has changed that. And on the other side, you know, for musicians speaking to musicians, I think Creative Commons is still a valuable tool. I love seeing that it's built in as an option in YouTube and that it remains the default, I think, on SoundCloud. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for it. But I think the rise of streaming has been a big challenge to it, having uh, a real strong play in the conversation. I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts about how to spread what Creative Commons is and expand the community of people that are participating in this kind of open way. One of the biggest things I've had to realize is that the idea of the Creative Commons is not necessarily um, inherently attractive to a lot of people for a variety of reasons. Um, part of it has to do with ego and the participation of music. I think a, a person who does not get the concept of Senius is not going to get the concept of the Creative Commons, likely. Um, I think that there's increasing and often quite um, deserved critiques of technolo technology in the form of corporations. And I think as a result, the connection of Creative Commons to a corporate culture um, can be very um, put off, off-putting to people. Um, I know a counter to that would be, oh, yes, but, but um, so much open source software um, provides a model for this sort of creativity. You know, a lot of GitHub is about copying code and sharing it. But at the same time, um, open source is still part of a larger technologically mediated um, business world. And so I think that in order to encourage people to think about Creative Commons as a means to participate in culture, you really have to think a lot about what their emotional response is going to be to both opening their work up for creative reuse, which is the ego part, but also you know, what does it mean that they're doing so in a realm where the technologies on which that work would be presented and ex experienced are often for-profit organizations um, that aren't necessarily feeding back into the pro creative process? So I'm sorry, that might have been a slightly long-winded response, but uh, I think it's a, it's a complicated time and a complicated topic. That was Mark Wiedenbaum, founder of the Disquiet Hunto, a distributed group in which musicians around the world respond to weekly prompts to compose, record, and share new music online. I was interested in speaking with Mark not only because I've participated in the Disquiet Hunto in the past, but also because I see it as a quintessential example 
of the promise and excitement of a community committed to sharing, reusing, and remixing work, creating new work, putting it out into the world. And I was really interested in how it's an example of the promise of Creative Commons and what it sets out to do in the world. Here's a loose and large group of musicians all over the world. They're each making music. They don't necessarily know each other previously, but they come together online, find each other's work, and they remix and reshare that work, leading to new beautiful compositions. In fact, to the tens of thousands. And it's a vibrant and rich ongoing community. It's over 10 years old. Sometimes the music has been exhibited. It gets presented in performances. It gets shared on podcasts like this one, for example. And as an artist and a musician myself, this is what I want to see in the world. This is the kind of thing that gives me a lot of energy, how this work gets shared and becomes part of a, a huge global community. And we stand on the shoulders of giants, or maybe a different metaphor, we're all kind of weaving this giant artistic tapestry together. Creative Commons itself is influenced by the history of open source. In software, that's sharing the code for your software, making it available to be modified, depending on the license, allowing or requiring it to be reshared with your additions and crediting past creators. And when we're talking about creative output like writing or poetry, film or music, it feels genuinely generous to me and a reflection of the world I'd like to live in to be part of a space where we can borrow and use and reuse other people's creative work, giving them credit, resharing our own work, putting it back out into the world. It's a modern version I think of, of how I think of musicians in the past, traveling around the world, playing gigs, playing weddings and ceremonies, passing songs back and forth to each other, each making their own spin on the music. So when I asked Mark about how to get the word out about Creative Commons so that more folks would be aware of it as a concept, I guess I was naively thinking that if only more people were aware of it, they'd choose it as a license rather than the default copyright so that when they release their, their creative work out into the world, more people would find out about it, want to reuse it, and kind of keep kicking it back into this global creative community. But Mark pointed out that's not always necessarily attractive to all creative producers and artists, particularly folks that aren't necessarily interested in creating work within that community, but also don't want to give up control of their work, and that many folks see technology tied to corporations at this point. And I'm thinking about how much of Silicon Valley's and corporations in general have built their products and their income largely off of open source software, including lots of work created by volunteers. Uh, this is something that Ramsey Nasser pointed out when we spoke to him previously, talking about the anti-capitalist software license. One of the Creative Commons license options is non-commercial meaning that if you put your work out in the world with the Creative Commons non-commercial license, then anyone who wants to remix it um, or use it has to not only give you credit, but they can't use your new remixed work in a for-profit context. Of course, this doesn't address who's using your work or remixing it. And if you're concerned about co-optation of the work or to what purposes someone may use or reuse it. In upcoming episodes, we'll try to tackle some of these limitations looking at how various communities are thinking through their collective knowledge and creative work and how they can share that with the wider world. You're listening to Artists and Hackers. Thanks to our episode's guests, Kat Walsh from the Creative Commons and Mark Wiedenbaum, writer, musician, and founder of the Disquiet Hunto. 
This season of the podcast is produced with the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. My name is Lee Tussman. Our audio producer is Max Ludlow, designed by Caleb Stone. The music on today's episode is all taken from Creative Commons licensed music created as part of the Disquiet Hunto. Our tracks today are All at Five, Sixes and Sevens by Wasabi Cube, Three Euclidean Rhythms by Lee Evans, Hippies Wearing Muzzles, both from Disquiet 567 3 meters. Ways by the artist Analog for Disquiet 482 Exactly That Gap. Little Green Aura by Hinuri and Leiko by Ohm Research for Disquiet 566 Outdoor Furniture Music. Four Voice Folly by Caustic Gates, part of Disquiet 565 Musical Folly. And Much Too Young Too by Nolan Verde for Disquiet 66 Communing with No Fi a posthumous collaboration with the artist Jeffrey Melton, also known as NoFi, who passed in 2013. You can find more episodes, full transcripts, and links to find out about our guests and topics on our website, artisanhackers.org. You can find us on Instagram at artisanhackers and Mastodon at artisanhackers at post.lurk.org. You can always write to us on our website, and please leave us feedback wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.